Welcome to Thriving Educators. I'm Brian Langley. In today's conversation, I talk with Lauren Neisel, a high school English language arts teacher who is particularly involved with our MTSS program. Lauren is a true professional, engaging with the literacy community as a contributor to numerous blogs. In this conversation, Lauren shares the lessons she's learned from a decade spent thinking about and working in the MTSS framework. I think you'll find her lessons salient no matter your role in education. Enjoy. Lauren Neisel, hello. Uh, Welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us. Good morning. Thanks for having me. So happy to be here. So you've had 11 years of experience with MTSS programs at the high school. Mm -hmm. I wonder if you could help us define MTSS for people that maybe aren't as familiar with that acronym. So MTSS stands for Multi-Tiered System of Support. So it's basically a framework. Um, We kind of think of it as like a tiered pyramid where we're looking at students um, kind of in three separate sort of levels. So all students are part of MTSS, like every single student we work with, because it's really a framework to understand like how kids need support. Some kids need none. Some kids need a little bit. Some kids need a lot. And so like looking at MTSS, the pyramid is a way to help us to understand that each kid is sort of getting like the just right support that they need. So at a tier one level, that's what we would say all students are tier one. And so those are the things that happen within a classroom. Like it's the things that you do that help a student who might not be understanding a concept at first. Um, And it's those small little moves, often maybe that you're doing completely unaware of it to try to help students understand and, you know, get to perfect efficiency. When we think about some kids, though, that's not enough just to be in a class and have like the normal things that all kids get. Sometimes they need to work with um, an academic support coach. And so that's kind of where we get into like a tier two and tier three intervention. So a tier two is where we try to do some things that are going to help um, provide them with some skills that will help them to get through the curriculum. It might be that they're in small groups. It might be that the interventionist goes and works in the classroom alongside the teacher. Um, And we're hopeful that when we do a tier two, that that'll take care of it. Sometimes though, that's not enough. And so when we get to a tier three, we increase our intensity and our frequency. And a lot of times the tier three is the sort of thing that's like the last chance before we start to think and consider, do we need to involve special education? And so MTSS is this framework that's also meant to be kind of like um, a gatekeeper. Like we don't want to over refer kids for special education Uh, and particularly when we look at um, the disproportionality um, between students of color um, and students who are not of color, we find that students of color have historically been referred more for special education. So something like MTSS is a way to make sure that all of our kids are getting their gaps filled and we're not just, you know, doing this knee jerk thing where we're jumping to over support because the best place for any kid to learn is that least restrictive environment. So MTSS is trying to help kids get those adjustments and tweaks so that they can have what they need to be successful. In your decade of working in MTSS environments or with the MTSS program, um, I'm curious, like what has been the biggest takeaways for you? You know, I think that the biggest takeaway for me um, is that the best way to really manage an intervention is to prevent it. 
And so, um, you know, when we think a little bit about this idea of prevention, I, I think that the best place for any student to grow is in the classroom setting. And particularly when we are looking at secondary kids, which is, you know, who I work with mostly, I think that developmentally, um, it's it's really to their benefit to be with their peers and their classmates. You know, having them in a separate pullout intervention for long periods of time isn't the healthiest way for them to learn, um, especially as we think about those collaborative skills that we're trying to really hone for our kids as they're getting ready for career in college. Um, and, you know, I can't speak for what early education looks like, but I would probably say that um, interventionists who work at the elementary level also see the benefit of, of kids being with other kids. And I mean, that's, I think that sense of belonging in a classroom really is what kids, no matter what their ages, seek. And so I think that for um, us to be able to do that um, is that, you know, basically when we see a student who's struggling, um, you know, I think we need to think, well, what, what, shifts or what small moves often it's like small moves make big waves that was like a huge piece of advice a professor in college told me okay. what are those small moves that really can shift um what a student is doing and how they're thinking um, about themselves as readers and writers or any subject you're teaching um and so when i think that um you know when it, i think the role of mtss is important but i think that what the teacher does is more important because that's who they're with most of the time. So um, I would say for me, like I have this interesting role now where my feet are kind of in both worlds. I do MTSS support, but I also teach ELA 9. Mm -hmm. And because I've worked a lot with students who have struggled to get through material and content, it's changed how I'm teaching and shifting things at a tier one level for all of my kids. And so kind of, you know, a lot of times teachers are like, oh my gosh, like how do I manage like the, what these kids who are struggling need? But like, I think a big takeaway for me that I would emphasize is that the shifts you make for the kid who's struggling are going to help everyone. Right. And it's only going to like help lighten that cognitive load <laughs> that kids have. So I think that's, that's a big takeaway. So I get the feeling, uh, listening to you describe MTSS programs, that they're largely a program of tier one strategies. Is this your perspective as well? Do I have this wrong? Yeah, so I definitely think tier one is where it's at. In fact, I was talking with um, a literacy specialist out of Oakland schools, and a lot of her work um, centers on programs that pull kids out of the classroom. But one of the things that even she said was that those programs have like their merit, they do what they need to do. But ultimately, the, the research shows that the biggest indicator of a student's growth and achievement is what takes place within the classroom. So I think in a lot of ways, it's about um, really shifting how we think about learning. Um, and so, you know, when we like that pyramid I was telling you about at the beginning, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of times we identify kids in our building who are MTSS kids as like the tier two or tier three, mm -hmm. but we forget that all of our kids are, are you know, within that um, framework of support. Right. So like to me, core instruction is something that like is really important. So for us to be able to say like, oh yeah, that kid needs a tier two intervention if like the kid's not getting the core instruction they need, it's harder for us to know how to support. And likewise, when we go to like um, like an SST referral meeting where we're, we're starting to involve special education, they want to know, well, what core instructional moves have occurred so we can see what the kid's gaps might be or might not be and to know if they've received that, you know, core instruction that's necessary. So like I sort of think that, um, you know, 
our goal at the high school is really to get our kids to independence. Mm -hmm. So like we like qualifying a kid for special education, for example, as a junior, isn't necessarily going to have the same impact that that would in the earlier years. So we have to be thinking like, how can we get all of our kids to manage themselves independently? And some kids need more scaffolds than others. And so, um, you know, eventually what we want, though, in a perfect world is that we've really helped them 9, 10, those grades. And by the time they get to the second half of high school, they need that support less and less. Um, And so really, you know, the best place for them to be moving in that direction is to sort of be within the classroom. Okay, so as I'm listening to you talk about this, I'm thinking to myself, okay, so if the MTSS program begins with tier one strategies and tier one strategies, are the strategies that are taking place in every classroom, then really every classroom teacher is an MTSS teacher, just really yeah. teaching, you, you know, using the tier one strategies. So uh, I'm curious then, if since this is the case, um, what guidance do you have for classroom teachers? Are there some high yield tier one strategies that you can um, point us in the direction of or you would recommend? Absolutely. So I think the first thing is explicit instruction. Like okay. that that is the backbone that if you walk into any sort of MTSS conference or hear a speaker, that's what they will say. In fact, Anita Archer is one of the MTSS sort of big names and that is like that literally the title of I think one of her books is explicit instruction. Okay. And so this idea of like being very clear with students on what what they need to do and, you know, providing them with like outcomes that are, you know, um, things that they can understand. So like what that might look like, for example, in a writing classroom is we're working on a essay and it's a particular type of essay and I have student samples and I have mentor text and we're talking about, well, what does that end product look like? And then along the way, we're also looking for talking through like, well, what are some choices that you can make? And so I think with explicit instruction, it kind of comes back to like you being really clear about what the behaviors are are like necessary of the student in order to produce the result that you want. So like thinking like a scientist, thinking like a historian, thinking like a mathematician. So a lot of the things that have, um, I think, kind of naturally happened in our disciplines, I think in the last decade or so, you know, that's what we want to make really clear to our students. It's like they need to understand and see learning as choices and and how to create um, like understanding of their learning or to show proficiency. It, they have to make certain choices. So I think once kids have a sense of what that looks like, I think that that is something that is really high yield. I also think that um, one-on-one time is the thing I go back to a lot. And I know teachers are like, well, how am I going to do that? I have six class or five classes and I've got, you know, all these, I've got 30 kids or sometimes even more. Sometimes you have 35 kids in a class. How mm-hmm. are you going to give them that one-on-one? And it's hard. It's definitely not easy. But I think one of the things that has worked well for um, me when I think about the structure of planning a lesson in my room for English, you know, sometimes it'll begin with starting out with something like independent reading. And during independent reading time, that's a time where it's a little slice of time where I might be able to check in with one or two kids. I also have, you know, like there's a mini lesson. So we're learning a new skill. Like one of the things we talked a lot about in our last unit was how information 
informational writers, they, they draw analogies and comparisons. And let's talk about the impact of it. So we do a little mini lesson. Then the kids have some writing time. And so during the mini lesson, that's where like they get the information. And then the other sort of like third of my class is devoted to them writing, practicing, working through things. And I've kind of made it like this habit and routine that whenever there's work time, I'm up and walking. And it might be a simple like, hey, check in, how you doing? Mm -hmm. Sometimes they say, I'm great and I'm fine. Sometimes they're like, I have a question about this. Or you like honestly know who your kids are that need to be checked in with. Mm -hmm. And so with those kids, it's not maybe how it's going. It's a, hey, here's what I noticed happened in your um, last assignment or here's what I'm noticing you're doing like here's a common error I'm noticing that you're doing in this problem we worked through and so like providing that time where like you can one-on-one -on -one talk with kids I think is really helpful one of the things I think that we've been hearing and talking a lot about in the last year is like how do we support our students social emotional well-being Mm -hmm, of course. I think that a lot of times it's really important to do those things that are community building and are fun that take us maybe away from our content. But one of the things that I think is for me as a teacher, high yield is that one-on-one -on -one is like the way that you let the kid know, listen, I got your back. And so if we want to talk about like kids feeling that sense of wellness in your classroom, you know, it doesn't mean that you have to go talk with them about like deep, dark secrets. Mm -hmm. It's that ability to like go in, be close by them, like proximity is huge. Okay. <laughs> and to be able to just like address them and like have a one-on-one -on -one conversation. And so like I have one of those like um, hokey or hockey stools, one of those little wobble stools. Sometimes I take a little like chair and I wheel it around and I'll pull up a chair and sit down next to them. And I think that by sitting down next to them, it changes like to the dynamic of how we're talking. So like that to me, like is does a couple things as well like you're providing that relationship building that i think is really important but i think you're also um normalizing that everyone in this class gets a conversation with you know mrs nice and it's not just the kid who doesn't understand and so like part of like what makes a good tier one intervention is that you need to let other kids who are getting that support know that that's normalized. And so that's one of the things like big picture program wise that we've tried to do. So so I think that for me, you know, being incredibly clear with what I want um, and, and making sure that I have that one-on-one -on -one, um, time to check in is key. And then the other things I would say too, just like the agenda on Schoology, okay. I had a really interesting experience early on in the school year where a student of mine, um, we were hybrid, so like several days a week they were at home, and I put on my agenda one of the things that I wanted the at-home kids to do was to read the book. Now, oh, that week before I had passed out memoirs, we were getting ready to do our Lit Circle unit in, in ninth grade English, and I said, and so, so pretty much every kid who had been in school would have known that read book was to do that. Mm -hmm. At least that's what I thought. Well, this student came back and I said, how's your reading going? What book am I supposed to read? I'm so confused. And so suddenly I had this like, oh my gosh, like these kids are at home. They right. have zero structure and they, they don't know what to do. So what I would do is I would say like, if you're at home, you're going to do this first. Then you're going to submit this. And then you're going to do this. And I was like super explicit and clear with exactly what they needed. And honestly provided what seemed to me like more detail than what was needed. Mm -hmm. But then I have to like always tell myself like it's a lot clearer to me because it's in my head. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's a, 
<laughs> so like for them, there's like a lot of assumptions that I'm making about the clarity of my instruction because it's in my head. But for them, they're hearing something different. And so um, I started to do that where I was really clear with, okay, like my in-class kids, first we're going to do this all together. Then during the independent time, you're going to make sure you complete this. And then here's a reminder, make sure you submit X, Y, and Z because kids were sometimes, you know, starting the work, but not submitting it. So like, it's all those like little things like where you're like, it kind of goes back to what I said before, those behaviors, like you're really clear and like modeling and thinking aloud the behaviors that you want them to have in order to get into the routine of your learning. So I'm going to think about being explicit both with my instructions and in modeling what I want things mm-hmm. to look like, but also in like, what are the steps of this class and what are we going to be doing today? And then I also want to be carving out time to have one-on-one conversations with students, let them know I have their back, work on those relationships. Those are mm-hmm. some high yield strategies that you've seen that I can put into play. Absolutely. Okay. So as we conclude, I've been asking all the guests on here if there are any uh, resource recommendations you have education related um, to share with everyone. So I have a few. They are going to be probably more specific to literacy since that's really sort of the mainstay of my work. Um, But for me, one that really changed, honestly, how we think about reading within our whole English department has been Read Aside by Kelly Gallagher. That's a really um, great book because it's about how do you build stamina and readers. One of the big things that our kids don't have to academically like thrive at high school is that they don't have that stamina. So one of the things that we think about in English is how do we build that muscle because it doesn't just impact our discipline, it impacts everyone's because reading is something that's going in every single class and that's something that um, disciplinary literacy is you know really important for. Um, another thing, I, another book I really love is this book by John Warner called The Writer's Practice. He's a college professor and he writes a lot about um, the things that he teaches his composition students. Okay. And, and I feel like for me, it's really helpful um, to consider like what are those habits and those, those skills that um, college professors are seeking in our, our students. And I think a lot of times they're not what we think they are. Okay. You know, it's not that, you know, those sort of like very traditional, like they must know how to, you know, write in this form and there's this, this structure and this routine and that's not. And so it kind of goes back to, um, the, the, um, college, um, board, like the, you know, the composition board, they put together some recommendations for college readiness. And a lot of them come down to the habits of the mind, like flexibility, being an innovative thinker, um, being open-minded. So a lot of it kind of crosses over even with our school with some of those IB, um, you know, learner profiles uh, traits that we talk a lot about. So I think I liked that book because it really kind of got back to like, what are the choices that we want our kids to be able to make when they leave us? And so that helps me to think of the scaffolds I need to build while they're still with me. Um, so that, that is a book I really love, The Writer's Practice by John Warner. And then I would say, um, for me, um, if you're able to ever go to conferences, like I so recommend them because I think they spark your thinking mm-hmm. in ways that um, really get you excited about your, your, your teaching craft again. I think it's a, this job is, is definitely not for the faint-hearted. There are times where I think we all feel really like tired and we're in the weeds. And I think that when you can go to a conference, it is – 
the breath that you need often. And so like I, I had the, um, the, the fortune of going to the National Council of Teachers of English Conference a few years ago. That was amazing. Like the level of diversity of thought and the presenters and what I was able to come back with and how it just really invigorated me as a teacher was enormous. Um, but even you don't have to go to a national conference. You know, there's lots of web conferences. Um, national Writing Project is an organization I've been a part of since I was a first year teacher. They have some really great, you know, virtual type you know, um, conferences where they're doing them over Zoom, which some people might say, no more Zoom, but maybe for you, it's convenient. You don't mm -hmm. have to leave your house. Um, you know, we have things like the, you know, Michigan, um, you know, um, has multiple conferences that are related to different fields. And so I think for me, a huge resource is hearing what other experts in the field are saying and talking about. And so to me, like, I guess as a general resource, I would say, find a way to get to a conference at least once a year. Like, I feel like it's what you need if you can. Or, like, have your ears wide open when you're hearing other people talk about their teaching. Or even just have lunch once in a while with a colleague and I think talking to them about some of the things that they're doing mm -hmm. can help give you that same experience without having to go to a conference necessarily. Gotcha. And part of what you're talking about is what we're trying to accomplish with this podcast of letting people share ideas and uh, get different perspectives. So thank you very much. We'll yeah. add those to our resource list. So I'm curious Great. as we wrap this up, um, what's on what's on your mind these days? Is there a particular problem that you're trying to solve, something that you're working on? Well, I think for me this year has um, been a really interesting year because I think I've seen not just my students and what it, but I've also seen the bigger picture, especially with our virtual learners um, who are at home. And so I think that our families play, like obviously they've always played a huge role in like the learning that our students do, but like I think I've underestimated it. And mm -hmm. so it makes me wonder, like as we're thinking about moving forward, how do we engage families? And I also think about this, too, just because I have growing children, and as they get closer to high school, I realize how young our high school kids are. Mm -hmm. And so, like, to an extent as well, I also think there's questions I have as a parent about, like, well, what do you do when this happens or this happens? And it makes me wonder, like, you know, I, I also have kids who are younger elementary. You know, I wonder if um, – if, like the same sorts of mechanisms we have in place for families at the elementary buildings. Like mm -hmm. how can we think about that at the high school level? And I don't have the answer, but I just, I think about our families and like, I know I talked a lot about like the relationship between the kids being important, but the other thing that honestly has is a, a very high yield result is finding a way to connect with families. And it might even just be a simple email, you know, but I okay. mean, but I think for me, that's the thing I'm trying to think about intentionally is how do I draw parents into the things I'm trying to get their students to do in school? How do I support them with what they need? You know, because I think a lot of times, you know, parents would be like, they're really struggling and like I'm working and they have to do this. And it's like, there's just so many things that I think our parents are also experiencing. And so that to me seems like the next natural step is how do we then help families so that like, they're getting what they need at school, but they're not going home and like melting because of what's 
happened at school. Mm -hmm. But how can we create like sustainable um, ways of learning, not just in school, but also outside of school? Because again, it goes back to the kid eventually is going to be an adult who's going to need to be independent. And so how do we, how do we as like a village, parents, teachers, community members support and give that kid what they need so that they can then go be that adult in the future? And to me, that village metaphor has like always been something in my mind that I thought about as a parent, because I know there's a village of people that support me as a parent. But then I wonder like, okay, well, I'm, I'm in someone's village, you know, I'm supporting like a Mm -hmm. child and their growth and learning. So what does that mean for me? And how can I do that so that parents um, feel supported and also are um, informed so that like they can help their kids make the right choices at home? And I think yeah. it's, 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 it's tricky, you know, in, in terms of like how you position that, because in some ways working with struggling learners who, who are really feel uh, self-conscious maybe about getting the support, you know, like I can see how that that's a different conversation for a parent of like a young child versus a parent of an older child who's, who is a seasoned parent right. who's been, who's, it's not their first rodeo. Mm-hmm. And so like, how do we, how do we engage in those like a meaningful connections with home so that ultimately that child um, can be successful and, and healthy? Yeah, that's a really good point. Really. That's a, a tough, tough question to ask and to work on. So I think you've got your work cut out for you now. I, I think I do. <laughs> I think I do. So, well, and I'm sure I'll never fully get to the answer. It'll, it's just a constant work in work progress. Work in progress. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, that seems like a great place to wrap it up. So Lauren Neisel, thank you so much for the conversation today. Absolutely. Thank you again for having me. This was a pleasure. Okay. That wraps up this episode of Thriving Educators. I want to thank Lauren Neisel for sharing her expertise of the MTSS framework. Lauren makes it clear that all classroom teachers are MTSS teachers and that Tier 1 strategies are our best tool for supporting our students. Take care, everyone.